Good morning, everybody. I'm Hannah, and will you please pray with me? God, you are so good, so filled with grace and mercy and justice. We ask that we would see you in our lives this day, that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, the movement of our bodies would be yours and of you. And in the ways and places where they aren't, we pray that you would help us when we try again tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is such a good story. It's just such a good story. I love this story. It's such a great story. And most sermons, right, they start with like an example from life that like gets you invested and makes you understand why the Bible is a part of your life. And that's all good. But this story is so good. We're just going to like talk about the Bible for a while. All right? Okay? Bible for a while. Um, because the birth of Jesus, it, it's a, it sticks in our head and it sticks in our lives. Um, in a way that is out of proportion to the way that it is told in the scriptures, right? The percentage of time spent on Jesus's birth in these stories compared to the percentage of like worship energy we spend on Christmas every year is pretty out of proportion. And part of it is because um, it is so shocking. <laughs> it is so strange. It is so different that this is the kind of story we shape ourselves by. God choosing to come to earth as a tiny baby with promises of great power, but a reality of great weakness, living in poverty um, with parents who are unsure, who may have been a scandal in their community. And that is who we love, and that is who we follow, and that is how we follow him. The story is a good story, this one from Matthew, but it's probably the one with which we are least familiar um, I know here at Urban Village, some of us have been Christians for five minutes, some of us have been Christians for 50 years, some of us would not apply that label to ourselves at all. So uh, a gospel, right, is a book of the Bible that tells the story of the life of Jesus. That's what we call a gospel. The gospel is the good news. A gospel is a book that tells the story of the life of Jesus. Anybody know how many there are in the Bible? I just told you. Why did I do that? Um, okay, it's four. Apparently, I have like a subconscious need uh, to answer the question. Um, there are four Gospels, right? Um, oh, such a nerd. Okay, all right, so there are four Gospels. There are four Gospels, and the four Gospels are different. If anybody ever tells you, right, um, that they have a, a hold on the one literal interpretation of the one true Bible, and that's why they get to tell you what to do, you say to them, there are two creation stories and four Gospels, so I think that God wanted us to live with a little bit of like diversity, context, and contradiction. Okay? There you go. Um, but the four Gospels <laughs> all tell the story of the birth of Jesus in a different way, to the extent that some of them don't even tell it at all. Mark, the Gospel of Mark, does not care about how Jesus was born not relevant to Mark's understanding of the gospel. Much more relevant for Mark is Jesus' preaching, teaching, death, right? That's the core stuff. Mark also, it's the shortest gospel. He does not waste a word. Mark is the Ernest Hemingway of New Testament writers. Um, he doesn't talk about the, the birth, just not relevant. John, um, John talks about the birth of Jesus, but in uh, a much less literal way than some of our other gospel writers. John, uh, John is that guy, if you went to college, he's the guy who would like 
down the, the dorm hallway from you, like always had a lot of thoughts at 3 a.m., you know? Just was like filled with philosophical meandering. Uh, John is the Roberto Bolaño of the New Testament writers. He likes a little layer of metaphor on his storytelling. And so when he tells the story of the birth of Jesus, it's all, uh, the word became flesh and into the world entered these great forces of, there's no like, there's no dates, times, places, characters, settings. Um, it's all about this kind of bigger metaphorical meaning. So the only two stories we get that we would sort of recognize as stories uh, that you could, you know, make a claymation movie out of, stories that you can tell, stories that have people and places, are Matthew and Luke. Matthew and Luke. And even then, this, we heard the story from Matthew today, Almost all of what you hear and see about Christmas is Luke, 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 Luke all the way. Because Luke offers by far the most detail and by far the most sort of like vivid, capturable imagery. Luke is the one who goes through Mary's uh, difficult decision with us, right? Where Mary is offered this extraordinary opportunity, um, but also burden, and she says yes to it, and an angel appears to her. Luke offers us Elizabeth, her cousin, with whom Mary spends the first few months of her pregnancy, and the, who is the mother of John the Baptist, and having their babies in the womb like kind of say hi to each other across the way. Uh, Luke is the one who offers the shepherds on the hill and the magi following a star and all of this extraordinary stuff that makes for good storytelling. And what Matthew gives us is this story about which there are no hymns, right? There are no hymns about this story. There's no movie about this story. There's no nativity about this story of Joseph who has been told that his betrothed, and in this context, betrothed means he has married Mary already. In this context, there were two phases of marriage. One, you got legally married. Second, you moved into the same household when you had the resources and consummated that marriage. They, for all intents and purposes, are legally married in a society where divorce and adultery can get you stoned, right? Can get you killed, bring great shame upon you. In this version of the story, Joseph has heard that this woman that he loves and has married is pregnant, and he has not been with her. <laughs> and so he assumes um, that she's cheating on him, and, and he thinks that he has found the right way to handle that situation. Right? Joseph feels like in his life there are only so many options when it comes to this kind of situation. There are only so many options. Um, one is to divorce her really publicly, um, let people know about what has happened and what she has done, and that will result in great shame for him, but also probably great violence for her. She might be kicked out of her home, um, she might be killed, anything could happen. And then there's divorcing her quietly. He sees these as the only two ways, right? And so he's going to divorce her quietly because it says he is a righteous man. Um, he thinks he can't be with someone who's hurt him in this way, uh, who's been faithless to him in this way, but he's not going to cause her that level of pain, right? He thinks he's chosen the right way, the loving way, the merciful way. And then the angel comes to him in a dream. And the in a dream part, I think, is important. Um, most of the other people in this story, right, uh, they get the angel in full glory right in front of them where they could touch the hem of the robe. 
uh, even the Magi, they get stars that they can kind of like reality check with other people about, right? Like, do you also see that star? Star? Yes, we agree. There's a star in the sky. Okay. Um, but Joseph, it comes in a dream. Dreams can be written off, right? Dreams can be said to be nothing more than imagination. Dreams can be said to be false messages from a, a, a terrible power, but he gets an angel in a dream telling him, don't worry. That baby is from the Holy Spirit and you should marry Mary. And on that sliver of hope, he makes a choice that he thought was not a possible choice which is to say my relationship with Mary matters more than the rules of my society. (laughs) My love for this person, my love for this marriage matters more than any shame I might accrue because people believe that she was with someone before she was with me. He sees a way forward all of a sudden that he didn't know was there. God shows him a way forward that is bigger, more expansive, more merciful and just than his society had given him to believe was possible. There were ways forward that he had not seen. And there's another portion to this story that Matthew tells us. That's the biggest thing we get about the birth. He tells us a bunch of stuff about after the birth, teachings and Herod and running away and all this stuff, but that's what we get about the the birth of Jesus. Plus one other thing which we didn't have the scripture reader read because it's frankly really hard to read passages like this. Uh, But if you have your Bible, I'll point it out to you. The beginning of Matthew 1, which is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, son of Abraham. And it is for half a chapter, uh, one of these famous passages of the Bible, if you've ever tried to read it through, that's like, X begat Y, who begat Z, who begat A, who begat B, Um, which if you know the characters and you know like why they're in there is really fascinating and interesting the same way that your own family tree might be fascinating and interesting to you. But if you don't, just seems really boring and hard to get through because you don't know any of the names and it's like reading a stranger's family tree, right? Um, But there's a reason that we're given this stuff. There's a reason that we're given the ancestry of Jesus. And let me read you the first couple lines. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And it goes on and on and on until we see many figures in the life of Jesus, four of whom, like Tamar, are women, who normally wouldn't be mentioned in an ancestry. And all of them were women who had uh, complicated sexual reputations and complicated births and ways forward in their lives ways that their societies would not have approved of, ways that their societies would have thought to be scandalous gossip. But they're all in there as a part of Jesus' story. And Jesus' story and Jesus' ancestry comes through Joseph, who, as we just talked about, right, is not Jesus' biological father, but sometimes stuff matters more than biology. (laughs) Sometimes adoption, love, the choice to care for each other matters more than the ways we have been told make a family. And so there's a lot to this ancestry of Jesus, and we're going to talk about why that's a part of the story and why it offers us the same unusual and unanticipated way forward it offered Joseph so many years ago. But to do that, I want to show you something um, that is like one of my favorite TV shows of all time. 
which if you're like a real PBS head, you may be familiar with, <laughs> but if you're not, you may not. Um, anybody heard of African American Lives and African American Lives 2, Henry Louis Gates Jr.? It's the best. I'm about to show you a clip. Uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr. was the chair of the Department of African and African American History at Harvard, and he had a sort of personal interest in genealogy which for everyone is interesting, but particularly for black Americans often means kind of excavating parts of history that have been deliberately lost, right? Um, and so he did this TV show, which has now expanded to all of these multi-ethnic versions, Faces of America, and all of these other explorations of where we come from, um, that would take famous black Americans and follow back their history. Where did you come from? Who were the generations before you? Um, who is your family and what have they done? And one of the people he followed uh, was uh, Tina Turner, right? the fantastic musician and singer who had a difficult childhood in the middle of Tennessee. She picked cotton from a really, really young age. Um, her family was not well off. She lived in a context of really oppressive legal systems. Um, she later famously was in an abusive relationship with Ike Turner, uh, but she made joy in the world through music and dance, and she made freedom for herself through the ways in which she found new ways to love herself and love life and community. Sorry, I've been strictly instructed to keep my hair out of the mic. That's why we keep on getting these little uh, noises. Um, and she was one of the people who got this history experience. And I want to show you a clip from her episode. The church reminded us that we were children of God. That was very, very important. We've never forgotten that. When Jim Crow America shut our ancestors out, they didn't just give up. They created their own institutions, often at great personal sacrifice, building the foundation for change. This is a land deed from Benjamin B. Flagg, your great-grandfather George Flagg's older brother. I, mm -hmm. Benjamin B. Flagg of, yes, B. Flagg, mm -hmm. of Haywood County, Tennessee, mm -hmm. for the sum of $25 cash, have sold to the trustee of Flagg... That's right. Flags. Flag Grove Schoolhouse? Mm-hmm. One acre of land. One acre of land. Flag Grove was my... No. The going rate for land in Tennessee at this time was approximately $75 or $80 an acre. So Benjamin Flagg sold his land below market value so that our people could have a school. He made it possible to create Flag's Grove School. I went to Flag Grove School, elementary school. <sighs> great. <laughs> Just great. Wow. I've seen that like 10 times and it makes me cry every single time. Um, but there are a couple of extraordinary things about Tina learning her history, right? One is what Benjamin Flagg did and what she did, which is that they both made a way where there seemed to be no way, right? Benjamin Flagg was a sharecropper kind of barely out of the era of enslavement of peoples, and he found a way, though it gained him nothing financially, to get land, find land, and even though he had no wealth, donate it for a school, for black children who were not being allowed in other schools in the area. 
like he made a way where there was, was no way, just like Tina made a way where there was no way in her difficult circumstances to find liberation and joy and hope. But there's another remarkable thing about this story, which is uh, that Tina didn't know that, right? She had ancestors who had done extraordinary things under difficult circumstances, who had made things better within their lifetime, and that didn't necessarily make her lifetime easy. It didn't mean that things were set out on a silver plate for her when she was born just because her ancestors had done those extraordinary things. Something I've heard from a lot of people this year um, as we have experienced profound hate crimes, um, public language that uh, to some has seemed unprecedented, although sadly it's quite precedented, right? Um, as we have lived through this year, something I have heard of from a lot of people is that things aren't working the way that they thought they were supposed to work. There was this sense, right, that each of us, each person and each generation um, works to make a little bit of change and then that change is permanent and things get better, and then there's a new kind of change to be won. That progress might be hard, but it is inevitable, and it goes upward. There's a story of history that we tell ourselves here. Um, and many people, uh, I've had a couple people actually say to me, Martin Luther King, most well-quoted and terribly quoted man in America, right, whose words have just been <laughs> taken in all kinds of ways. One of the things that he said was that the arc of the moral universe bends towards, is long, right, but it bends towards justice. And I've had a few people ask me, um, do you still think that's true? <laughs> they feel like maybe things are bending backwards or bending zigzag or not bending at the rate that they thought that they were. And that story of history, um, I think isn't one that is true or that God has offered to us. This one of inevitable getting better. But there is a story that God has offered to us, which is that in every generation and in every time and place, there is a way to be faithful to God by making a way out of no way and trusting that God will help us to do it. That there is a way to say yes to ways of hope and joy and love and relationship over rules in every time and place that we could ever possibly be in, and that that way is worth it. Even if sometimes we feel like we are seeing those gains being erased, that way is worth it. To be of God is worth it. To be of justice and of mercy is worth it. And it's not about um, that that will inevitably and permanently change things. It's that that is how we are called to be to make ways out of no ways, because we believe that God can do that. Part of this ancestry and why it's so important to the story of Joseph and the story of Jesus is that it shows us that Jesus and Joseph's family was filled, filled with people who were in terrible, not understandable circumstances <laughs> that were painful either personally, right? Like, uh, we're not going to go into the whole Tamar and Judah thing, but for those of you who know, like that is a really messed up family situation. Like her family of origin is not ideal. Okay, let's say that um, a painful family situation, but she makes a way. She makes a way forward. 
Jesus was not the first person in his family to be born into an oppressive empire. More people on that list than not were born into an oppressive empire, and the way that they lived their life didn't destroy the idea of empire forever. But it did make a way. It made a way for their family to continue. It made a way for their witness to continue. It made a way for the witness to hope and joy and love and the possibility of more to continue, and it was worth it. Saying yes to those ways where it seems like there are none is worth it. And it's something that we can do together. Jesus' life was not easy. Jesus' ancestors' life was not easy. Jesus' descendants' lives are not always easy, but they can be incredible. They can be miraculous. They can be places where we share the work of liberation, hope, love, and life and where we are filled with dancing and singing and dream following, even when things aren't how we hoped or expected them to be. This is the power of Christmas and why it gains such currency and presence in our hearts, even if Mark didn't care much for it. (laughs) That Jesus' birth is a birth that says God knows how hard it is to be human. God cares, and God believes that there are extraordinary things to be found in those human lives anyway. Let's go live them and live them together and live them well. Amen? Amen.